This is the place where the explicit language warning goes, but on this podcast, there is none, but I still have to say it. Otherwise, it could be claimed under the laws of eminent domain. It's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Joe Manchin, you've surprised me. You've come around. You are supporting the bill that just a couple weeks ago you had sunk. I mean, I don't know if I should be surprised. Joe Manchin is a man whose last name means a big house, and yet he lives on a big boat. He contains multitudes. In a large, long, 1,300-word statement, Manchin explains some of what it was that got him to come around. And basically, the idea that I glean from that statement is this can plausibly be branded as an anti inflation bill and a deficit reduction bill, and it absolutely will not be branded as Build Back Better. Almost every other Democrat wanted to pass Build Back Better, but Manchin recognized that that brand at least was toxic to his voters and his interests. So it was important for him to be able to slay the dragon, and that's why in this statement he says, make no mistake, Build Back Better is dead. Build Back Better is dead, and instead we have the opportunity to make our country stronger by bringing America together. Maybe his opposition to Build Back Better is one of the things keeping it apart. But now, here he is endorsing the new bill. And he is right. If you want to call it a deficit reduction bill, that is a plausible statement. Because the accounting shows, I mean, this is according to the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, that... They'll be raising $739 billion in taxes and some popular taxes like 15% corporate minimum tax and IRS tax enforcement. And they will be spending about $433 billion in things like Affordable Care Act extension, which West Virginians like and need, and energy and security and climate change, which we'll get to in a second. But it means that $300 billion of the deficit, which Joe Manchin does honestly care about in a way that a lot of other Democrats poo-poo, the deficit will be coming down. Now, as far as energy and energy independence. We know that Joe Manchin loves coal. He's going to protect coal. And this new bill allows him to say, we're doing the things we need to do, but we're still protecting coal. I will read you a portion of his statement. Quote, in addition to fighting inflation, we must stop pretending that there is only one way to combat global climate change or achieve American energy independence. A couple of weeks ago, those words would have been the preamble, the throat clearing to the excuse, and that's why I can't support the bill. But here it is used, the verbiage is used in explaining why he can support the bill. He goes on to say, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 addresses our nation's energy and climate crisis by adopting common sense solutions through strategic and historic investment. Blah, 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 blah. The coal miners are going to be saved and we're still going to be able to give some subsidies and other things to electric vehicles and maybe, you know, a little carbon offsetting. Joe Manchin, you've done it again. You're the person of the day, which they say on Twitter you shouldn't be, but maybe in a 50-50 Senate, it's inevitable that a man from a state that's Trump plus 30-something will get to be the focus of once our ire and now our attention. On the show today, is it too soon for Yoon and Moon? Because I will talk about what's going on in South Korea politics and the current president possibly charging the past president with, well, 
you're just not going to believe it. But first, the Marvel Universe is a massive diaspora of storytelling and capitalism that's come to rule box offices and our imagination. I'm thinking mostly not of the movies, but of the comic books. And the reason I'm thinking of the comic books is I just talked to a man who read all of them. Tens of thousands of comic books which collectively form the Marvel Universe. That man's name is Douglas Woke. He is the author of all the Marvels, and he made his way through the multiverse to talk to us here up next. So, so many of us love Marvel Comics, grew up with Marvel Comics, and if you're a participant in the culture in 2022, you're surely influenced with the intellectual property undergirding the Marvel Universe. Douglas Woke did something maybe no one else has done. He read all of Marvel Comics. There are about 27,000 comics in existence, and he plowed through them all, some exceptions. We'll get to methodology, and then we'll get to results. He is the author of All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Douglas, thanks for coming on The Gist. Glad to be here. So I will. I want to reflect the organization of your book before we get to what you found, how'd you find it is the question. Um, there are, is that right? I've seen different numbers. And in fact, Marvel put out an estimate, but somewhere between 25 and 30,000 different books you could have at one time if you were alive when they were on the newsstands held in your hand. There's actually more than that, but I only treated the ones that are inside their big fictional world. So they've printed, they published all sorts of comics over the years. They've published horror comics and romance comics and Western comics, and they published Care Bears comics, and they've published, you know, uh, little kids comics. And what I was dealing with was the comics that are definitely set inside their big superhero universe, which is the thing now. Right. So I read some of the Star Wars comics. They were kind of a one-off and Luke Skywalker never interacted with Captain America. But I also read the Micronauts and you included them and I couldn't figure out why. Oh, because uh, the Micronauts are in that world. They meet Captain Universe. They meet the Man-Thing. They meet the <laughs> X-Men. You know, Nightcrawler hangs out with them a little bit. Uh, the Micronauts, uh, you know, they, they still... There are bits of Micronauts that still exist in the Marvel Universe, even though Marvel doesn't have the rights to the Micronauts themselves anymore. Who, how much do you think the rights to these tiny little toys that are probably best known as a choking hazard, how much do they go for, do you think? I don't know. They're owned by IDW these days. IDW all publishes Micronauts comics and ROM comics now. And you know, ROM was part of the Marvel Universe, too. You know, uh, ROM hung out with Rick Jones. ROM, ROM hung out with the Hulk. He was part of Secret Wars. But uh, Marvel doesn't have the rights to ROM anymore. So the Space Knights and Galador and all that other stuff that was in the ROM comics, that's still around. But ROM himself, you can't name him. How did, for the comics you excluded, and how many titles would you say you excluded? Oh, I mean... The stuff I excluded, there is a lot. You know, Conan. Uh, I did not read World War II stuff. I stuck to things stuck in the present day. There were a lot of things that I kind of carved out, like, nah, I don't have to read that one, because, you know, that's that's an alternate universe, that's, uh, that's a Care Bears comic, that's a Strawberry Shortcake comic, that's an <laughs> adaptation of House 2, you know. Uh, I, I, I didn't read those. But all everything with Spider-Man, and my rule was... If the version of Spider-Man who appears in Amazing Spider-Man 
if he could potentially show up in the comic, whether or not he does, but if it's in the same world that he's in and he could swing by the window, then I had to read it. Mm-hmm. And that made that made about 27,000. All right, so time, time spent, what was that? <laughs> well, uh, so I thought, okay, this will take me maybe a year to read everything and maybe another eight months to write the book and six and a half years later, here we are. How could you still, and readers should know, readers of the book, you love the comics. You have almost not, I mean, you're critical at points, but overall, as a work, you are extremely complimentary towards them. How could you not just get sick of them after not just a while, on day, you know, 312? So this is probably Stockholm Syndrome talking, Uh but after a certain point, I got the amazing ability to enjoy something about even really, really bad comics. Like I would see some thing that only a particular writer would do, only a particular artist would do, only a particular character would do. And I was like, oh, that creator is doing their thing. That's kind of cool to see. Or I would see some sort of weird topical reference to something that was going on in the world right then. Somebody asked me a couple months ago, did you actually read every single issue of NFL Super Pro? And I said, yes. Not only did I read every issue of NFL Super Pro, in one of the last issues of NFL Super Pro, there's a sequence that is like a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early (laughs) 90s, and you're just not going to find something like that in a good comic. (laughs) And you also read every letter to the editor in all these comics and every letter from Stan Lee. Yeah, I mean, that was the fun part. It's amazing to see the people who write into Marvel's comics in the early 60s. They're names that you recognize one after another. George R.R. Martin's first byline was- Without an R, right? Yeah, when he was just George R. Martin at that point. He was like 14, 15 years old. He wrote a letter to Fantastic Four about how amazing it was and how much he loved Fantastic Four. There's so many letters from people who went on to be comics writers and editors and uh, artists, and they were just getting in there at the beginning. And you know, Stanley is responding to all of them, like, you know, if you write into these comics, you can be part of this grand cultural experiment. And like, that's obviously a lie that you tell kids to get them to write in. And it also turned out to be true. Right. Did you contact any of the people who wrote in or even just come across them socially in later years and blow their minds that you knew at 15 they wrote into, I don't know, um, uh, West Coast Avengers? There was a guy named William Wu who wrote into Master of Kung Fu. And he was actually the one letter writer that I had to contact for this book because William Wu was the great correspondent to Master of Kung Fu. He essentially became their ombudsman. Uh, That's the impression I got from reading your book. Very much so. He obviously loved the comic. He also was not going to take some of the stuff that they were dishing out. There was some really questionable, really racist stuff that ended up in those comics, and he called them out on it every time. And he would write these long, thoughtful, interesting letters And the writer of that series, Doug Mensch, would respond to him and respond to his concerns and respond to other letter writers' concerns. And that's what changed the course of that comic. And I think that's incredibly interesting. And to sketch out some of the specifics of why you were into Masters of Kung Fu, that is the hidden gem. If people said, well, what'd you find that (laughs) isn't as celebrated? That's the one. But also, you recognize it has 
what we would call now, the word we would use is problematic elements, among them that the main antagonist was the Sax Romer character, Fu Manchu, who is a walking embodiment of all the ills of Orientalism. And to give my listeners some idea of what Wu was writing in about, how come all the characters are colored yellow in a way that is not does not comport with the reality of Asian skin? And the answer would be, oh, we only have a limited 32 colors uh, available to us, and it was either yellow or the car- or the color that Caucasians are using. And Wu is pressing him on this, and Mensch yeah. actually does change, at least because Wu has, and maybe some others, have raised these issues. Yeah, and it's fascinating to see. There's so much give and take. There's so much combativeness going on in the letter columns. You know, there's people writing in uh, during Watergate who are just absolutely furious about the state of the country and about the way that it's being treated in the comics. And at the same time, you know, there is a comic where a very, very thinly disguised Richard Nixon is unmasked as the head of the secret empire and shoots himself in the Oval Office in a comic that was published three months before the real, real world Nixon resigned. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I got the impression I got, and I know that the comics go even before Marvel was a company and Captain America existed, and that th- there was a lot of jingoism in the comics at the time. And then there was eventually a lot of anti-Vietnam sentiment and Iron Man uh, tangling with uh, campus protesters. And now Squirrel Girl is telling the Mole Man, you know, I can't invalidate your feelings. That's your lived experience. So what I would say, this is the impression I got, the politics of something as hard to nail down the politics of 27,000 issues is somewhere in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. It's like what they say about Joe Biden, where the center of the Democratic Party is where he is. And I got that impression from where Marvel was, or maybe since they were New York-based artists, maybe they were a little left of that. What do you think? I mean, it always reflects what's going on with its creators and what's going on with its editors. Uh, and you know, it is it is the writers and artists and creators of these comics working from their own, as you say, lived experience. There's also been well, Squirrel Girl says, "I don't want to, uh, I don't yeah, want to well, appropriate yes. Squirrel <laughs> yeah, Girl." Right. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you know, they're publishing Punisher comics all through this time. And I was thinking of that too, because in the air, vigilantism and Bernard Getz, and there was a sense again, mainstream Democratic Party of we got to take back our cities, and those were really popular. But this, you no, know, I mean. Punisher comics in the 80s were definitely, definitely, like, pretty far right for their time. Uh, and you know, he, he is this, like, you know, the, the, uh, the courts, the judges, they're just going to uh, be softies. They're going to let things uh, people off the hook. We have to show them what real justice means. And that's kind of terrifying to look at from this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I think I did a uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation that if you just added up everybody that the Punisher shoots in the course of his comics, he would be the worst serial killer in the history of New York City. He would account <laughs> for all of New York's homicides by himself. Yeah, except for maybe Lead Paint Man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know you, well, I got the impression that you like the Fantastic Four the most. I know you think huh. they're the most important. Uh, also, I know that you host a Doctor Doom podcast called Voice of Latveria, which is very funny. Um, it, am I right about that? I mean, they were prominent, and they, they're probably, if I look at the index, referenced more than other titles. They were the first of Marvel superhero comics. They are not the most important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first hundred issues, the Jack Kirby Stan Lee period, are very, very important to stuff that came after it. Uh, the ones that I care about the most, you know. Uh, 
on a large scale, like I love the X-Men. The last three years of X-Men comics are just my absolute faves. So into those. You mean from 2018 till now? These 20, last three 2019 years? to now, yeah. The last wow, the last wow. three years worth just yeah. I that is the thing that I fanatically follow every week at this point. Um I love Spider-Man on the whole. Fantastic Four have had moments that are real important to me, but not all of them. They're there, they're at the place where they are in the book because I wanted to kind of go through things in more or less chronological order from where the center of each of the series I'm spotlighting is. And gotcha. Fantastic Four are the first. So that's that's kind of the starting point. Are they the Ur text? Uh, the first hundred issues are in a lot of ways text for what's after it. Not entirely. It's it's not, it doesn't all flow from one place. You can't point to one thing and say, this is the best, this is the most important. It's a mass. It is a mountain. It's an agglomeration of a bunch of things that all kind of support each other and point to each other and rely on each other. That's what I think is more interesting about it. Right, right. Um, if you were so let's take what you did and think about the knowledge you gained. So if you were a superhero or villain in the Marvel Universe, who would you be? I was thinking of the Watcher. I was thinking of huh. some interdimensional Kang the Conqueror type. Has to be someone very brilliant with all the knowledge of the world. Maybe Doctor Strange. Who would you be? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, if you ask my son, he'll say Brain Drain, who is the... Uh a uh, grouchy philosophical brain in the jar from Squirrel Girl. Okay. Speaks in the slow German accent and is always quoting Kierkegaard. Um, yeah, who would I... Uh, I'm gonna say Sarah Bella, who's deep cut, uh, who... Don't know her or him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, her. She, she's she's a character from, from New Mutants, from the X-Men titles, and... Actually, she's also a brain in a jar. She used to be a brain in a jar. So, yeah, cl clearly identify strongly with brains in jars. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. If you had to make a pie chart of what makes for a successful character, uh, let's put the elements. The powers of the character, the personality of the character, the suit of the character, and anything else I'm missing. What's, what are the important elements there? How would you divide the pie? Personality is 900% of the pie. Okay. Uh, you know, Ms. Marvel, I don't know if you've been watching the Ms. Marvel TV show, but Kamala Khan's powers are completely changed. Her origin is drastically changed from the comic to the TV show. It doesn't matter because the character there is what's important. And the character of Kamala Khan is just an absolutely wonderful invention. She is Peter Parker for the 21st century. She is a teenager who is not sure where... And so a little background on her. Kamala Khan, she's new Ms. Marvel. She is a Pakistani Muslim 15, 16-year-old girl growing up in Jersey City who suddenly gets powers. And the question is, where do I fit in? How does this fit in with me and my family and my culture and my hometown and my school and my friends? And how am I... How is this changing things? How am I going to connect? How am... How is this going to help me grow up? That is the Spider-Man question. It doesn't matter what powers Peter Parker got. He could have been, you know, bitten by a grasshopper. You know, he could have been bitten by a vole, whatever. Uh, and then he'd be the amazing vole man, whatever. Uh, obviously, uh, Steve Ditko's costume for him is wonderful. Obviously, like, the powers are, like, kind of visually cool. That's nice. That's, that's a thing in addition, but... He is a nerdy, sciencey, social outcast 
who's, who has lost his parents, who lives with his elderly aunt, who feels like he has ruined his life by making one terrible decision, uh, who is devoting his life. Like, that's the interesting thing about that character. Not his powers, not his costume. You could change those. If the powers and the costume are good, great, but who the character is, is the most important thing. Is, are there any new powers under the sun or fueled by other suns? Uh, you know, there is a character that Grant Morrison made up back in Doom Patrol about 30 years ago uh, who had every power you haven't thought of. Uh-huh. So that, that, that officially means that all powers are now taken care of. <laughs> okay, so here's the uh, part where I tell you something I don't like about Marvel, which is this. I am not thrilled that Marvel, uh, not just the comic books, but I guess mostly the movie, has become the dominant myth of our culture. What do you think about that? Uh, Marvel became the dominant myth of our culture kind of because of the movies. I think the movies occupy much more brain space in people's heads than the comics do. The comics are where the raw material of movies comes from. that they've become the dominant myth. I don't know that they are. I think Star Wars might even have uh, more brain space. But if we have to have a dominant set of mythology, I, I'm happy to have that space shared. Mm-hmm. I just think it's super interesting that Marvel is the one that took over. I mean, if you, if you ask me what my favorite giant body of interconnected comics continuity is, I would probably say Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. Not Marvel. Not Marvel. Does it make sense if you didn't know if you were a time traveler from the 90s when maybe there was an X-Man movie and it did well, you know, so I'm not I'm not starting you out from when they had a couple of uh, projects that were announced and never came to pass. Would you, knowing what you knew about Marvel and knowing what you know about intellectual property, would you say that it made sense what did in fact come to pass? I'd never have guessed. Never, ever. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the triumph of the MCU has astonished me. Um, I'm a little taken aback by how well it's done. But also, like, I like a lot of those movies. I love a lot of those TV shows. Um, And it's just been, like, one interesting thing after another with the extra ingredient, which it borrowed from the comics, that they're all connected to each other, that seeing the connections between the things is an extra level of fun. And it keeps you coming back. Douglas Woke is author of All the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. He is the author of the Eisner Award-winning reading comics and the host of the podcast Voice of Latveria, you know, where Dr. Doom lives. Thanks so much, Douglas. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. The president of South Korea is taking steps to bring criminal charges against the former president of South Korea. Charging a former president is not that novel an act in Korean politics. In fact, not doing so is the exception. The current office holder, Yoon Suk-yul, is taking aim at his more moderate predecessor, Moon Jae-in, or to be fair to those who are very invested in South Korean politics, 
Yoon is a little bit to the right, maybe a lot to the right, and Moon is a little bit to the left. Maybe those a lot to the right would say is very to the left. Anyway, I have to make clear that I'm not interested in the tension between President Yoon and former President Moon for any small-minded reasons you may be suspecting. I am not, repeat, not captivated by the rhyming nature of the two men's names. Ever since I lived in South Korea, I have simply found politics there to be fascinating. I stay abreast of the news. I know, for instance, that it's somewhat of a tradition to prosecute your predecessor, and I'm further aware that Moon is more popular and was after leaving office more popular than is now Yoon, and Yoon only won by a sliver of the vote. He's seen his popularity decline. Maybe he's looking for some sort of initiative to distract the public. Again, I'm simply keen on Korean current events. There's no other reason. And while it's true that I am attuned to a Yoon swoon creating an opportune time to impugn Moon, saying that sentence is not the reason I bring you this story. It's fascinating in its own right, as I think you will come to agree. First of all, you have the dynamic between these two men. How did Yoon rise to prominence anyway? Well, this 2019 report from Ararang News sheds some light. President Moon Jae-in's pick for the prosecutor general is Yoon Seok-yeol, a nomination signaling sweeping reforms at the nation's law enforcement agency. The reason behind the nomination, Yoon's unshakable principles. So Moon seeking to signal how seriously he took the corruption of his predecessor, Park Yun-hae, hired a tough prosecutor. And now that prosecutor, as president, is persecuting the former president. But in this case, it's not for the usual acts of graft. That's how things typically go in South Korea. Now, the issue here is immigration, one specific immigration case. In 2019, Moon, who when it came to North Korea was more of a dove and convened two summits with Kim Jong-un, he ordered two would-be defectors to be repatriated back to the north. This most likely means that these fishermen were executed. It was the first time the South had ever returned a defector. Pictures of the fishermen being dragged to their apparent doom across the demilitarized zone have surfaced, and Yoon is raising a fuss about that. In the context of U.S. policy, it might seem really odd. You have the more conservative Yoon championing a case of asylum and not just criticizing but contemplating criminal charges against his more liberal predecessor because his more liberal predecessor deported two individuals. Of course, in the United States, anti-immigration rhetoric often paints any asylum seeker as immigrant as a criminal. Well, listen to this. The two fishermen I'm talking about in an account disputed by no one that I could find literally mutinied against their captain at sea, killed him, with a hammer and axes, although some sources say an axe and hammers, and then lured other crewmates two by two and slaughtered them as well via axe and hammer or some combination of hammer and axe. They did this to cover up their crimes. More than a dozen people were killed. Moon's former national security advisor sought to underline the nature of the defectors and explaining why he repatriated them by pointing out these are not just some murderers killing one or two people. They are notorious, heinous killers, end quote. In South Korea, the dovish former leader is taking heat for that decision by the more hardline conservative who is on the side of providing a safe harbor for the mass murderers. Of course, 
immigration isn't really immigration in South Korea when it comes to the North. It's unification, human rights, and the deepest cultural wound that can be contemplated. So that's how immigration plays differently there than it would here in America, but so too does prosecuting presidents. In the U.S., we don't do it, or at least we haven't done it. The question now is, should we make an exception, the rare exception, as it were, for, uh, what's the phrase? Oh, yes, the notorious and heinous acts of the last executive. Here is how South Korea deals with it. I will now read to you a list of the fate of every South Korean leader predating these Moon Yoon fellows. Here we go. Got it right here. Imprisoned, imprisoned, suicide after being criminally charged, uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, retired. So that was the good period. And then imprisoned, imprisoned, retired, assassinated, deposed in a coup. It's not a proper way to run a government. I got to say, somewhere in between blanket guidance prohibiting prosecuting a former leader for actual illegalities and almost always doing it for iffy illegalities, that's where the sweet spot lies. Sweet meaning we had a horrible leader and he requires criminal referrals. I do think the specifics, of course, dictate the stance that prosecutors must take. But let's remember, a cautious prosecutor or a reluctant legislator might tell himself or herself that their job is merely to carefully steer the ship of state. Only one day they find out they've got some disgruntled crew members willing to off them via axe and hammer. Hammer and axe. Killing everyone on board two by two. They call it the reverse Noah And I say you got to watch out for that eventuality as well. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca, once Michelle Hunter, is a little bit like Sue Richards, once Sue Storm. She went from being the invisible girl to the invisible woman. Michelle went from being a working girl to an overworked woman. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.